Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. And for the next year, I'll be teaching entrepreneurship at Vinh University in Hanoi, Vietnam. Today, please welcome Thinkers 50 ranked thinker and Harvard professor, Dr. Heidi Gardner, author of Smart and Smarter Collaboration. Heidi, welcome. Thank you so much. Really a pleasure to be here, Mark. Well, I love that book. And it's actually a book you need to read a couple of times to really absorb everything. Uh, so I, I encourage people that if you're really looking how to leverage collaboration and do it right, this book is probably the best book that you're going to read on this subject. So Heidi, let's start off with this. Tell us about your professional background and how you got to where you are now. Well, I couldn't be doing what I'm doing now if I didn't have this sort of portfolio career leading up to this. I was fortunate to have a combination of roles in sort of frontline management and people management. Um, I was with Procter & Gamble for a number of years and really cut my teeth in that blue chip company with some phenomenal uh, learning experiences, uh, getting mentored by phenomenal leaders and uh, really learning the business world from the ground up. I pivoted then after I did a Fulbright fellowship and a, and a master's degree, I went into consulting and I had the great opportunity to work mostly in London and also in Johannesburg for McKinsey and Company and um, had gotten you know, already a real international experience. But by the time I left McKinsey, I had lived and worked on four continents. Um, and that kind of cultural experience really infuses everything that I do. Um, after uh, I, I left McKinsey for my another master's and a PhD, and I joined Harvard, and I've been at Harvard for the last 15 years, first as a professor at the business school, now in the faculty of the law school, and also as the CEO of my advisory business outside of the Harvard and endeavors as well. You got too much time on your hands. Oh, absolutely. You know, I, I the good news is I am never bored, uh, but I love every part of what I'm doing, you know, running this research and advisory business draws on all of those different strands. And because I'm, you know, not only the nerdy academic, but I also drive for impact and quantifiable outcomes in organizations. I think it differentiates what I do and it really keeps me at the top of my game. Well, that's the only thing people pay for is quantifiable results. Um, why did you write your latest book, Smarter Collaboration? And maybe you should tell us a little bit about smart collaboration and why it led to smarter collaboration. Absolutely. So Smart Collaboration was the book that came out, I think it was in 2016, 2017, um, Harvard Business Press. And we were really drawing on a decade's worth of research then making the business case and the talent case for why smart collaboration was an imperative. It wasn't a nice to have, it wasn't a soft skill. We had collected millions of data records from organizations around the planet to quantify in this very you know, rigorous empirical way why engaging people who are working across different disciplines can lead to better outcomes. And we could measure uh, financial outcomes like higher revenues and profits, strategic outcomes like higher um, uh, customer satisfaction and differentiation in the marketplace, and also talent-related outcomes like the ability to attract, engage, and retain top talent. So smart collaboration got the idea out there that when you are working across these organizational silos, or as a leader, you're fostering the kind of, uh, of culture and putting the systems and structures in place that demands that cross-silo working, it absolutely pays out and we could measure the ROI on it. But what we found, Mark, is that, you know, in the, the, the few years after that book was published, it took off like we couldn't have imagined. We, we, we had never dreamt that it would get the traction that it did. It was a Washington Post bestseller and got, you know, garnered all sorts of awards. But I think at least as important to me, we saw lots of organizations putting this into practice. And what we saw along the way, perhaps not surprisingly, is that in the rush to implement this kind of cross-silo working, there were some pretty common traps and pitfalls 
that leaders and organizations fell into. Um, and one of the pitfalls was simply that they loved the idea and they launched initiatives, but they didn't get traction. They didn't bake smarter collaboration into all the ways that they were working. So I teamed up with Ivan Matviak and um, he, you know, we were practicing what we preached. He has a very different background than me. He comes from the software and financial services industries and uh, and private equity and, you know, very different um, uh, professional backgrounds. We were able to join forces and write this new book, Smarter Collaboration, to focus much more on the how-to's um, not only how to do smarter collaboration right to get that return on investment, but how to avoid some of those traps and pitfalls. Yeah, and we're going to talk about that throughout uh, this hour. What's your definition of smart collaboration and now smarter collaboration? Well, when we first started talking about smart collaboration, we talked about uh, a very deliberate, intentional way of starting with an end in mind, a big, complex, hairy, audacious goal where you needed people with different knowledge bases or different fields, different kinds of expertise to join forces. And a quintessential example of that was when I was working with the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. You know, no longer could they just have their brilliant rock star oncologists fighting cancer. They needed geneticists and mathematicians and a, a whole range of different kinds of specialists coming together to tackle this beast we call cancer. And what we realized in, you know, uh, in working with organizations, putting this into practice is that it isn't just the knowledge differences that make the, the enormous difference and allow people to do more than they could do on their own. It's tapping into the whole person. And so smarter collaboration embraces this idea, the necessity of recognizing that people who have different life experiences, who not just have different professional backgrounds, but have different, say, socioeconomic backgrounds or different cultural backgrounds or are different in a thousand ways, seeking people out deliberately for some of those differences that complement my own is what will allow me to be more productive, more innovative, uh, better at what I'm doing. And so that's part of the essence of smarter collaboration. What are the biggest barriers to smarter collaboration? Yeah, well, there's you know only one way to answer that, which is it depends, right? Um, and so what we have found is that there are a handful, call it five, six barriers, which are pretty common across organizations. And when I say organizations, I mean large, small, public, private, NGOs, government entities, any industry you can imagine. We have, we have really had the privilege of researching and working directly with advising organizations across an enormous spectrum. And so we found these um, you know, handful of barriers, which are fairly common across them. And what we found is that in any given organization, the prominence of those barriers, how much of a, of a perceived obstacle is it will really differ depending on a whole host of factors. But let's get, you know, get into a couple of those barriers. One of them is trust, or I should say lack of trust. We found two flavors of trust that are absolutely foundational to engage in collaboration. You know, Mark, if you and I want to team up in your next business venture, say, we have to have utter faith in each other's competency, right? That's that's competence. Sure. Trust. We have to believe that we're going to deliver high quality on time, on budget, et cetera. And it's not enough. You might believe that I'm the world's biggest guru in some area, but if you think I'm a jerk, your willingness to collaborate with me is nil, right? And that interpersonal trust is the other kind of, of trust that's absolutely crucial. And unfortunately, one or the other, sometimes both kinds of trust are lacking in organizations, either between peers or between individuals and, uh, say, and their leadership. Um, and so trust or lack of trust can be a, a major barrier. In some cases, it's more structural, like the incentive system actually discourages people from operating in a more collective way. They, they get rewarded for being sharp-elbowed and hoarding um, uh, knowledge or client relationships. And so there's a, a range of different barriers. And we strongly urge leaders to use a, a diagnostic, a data-driven tool to figure out which barriers are most prominent and make sure they're addressing the right ones. You mentioned that you interviewed over 400 senior leaders in diverse fields and that the focus has to be on the why. Can you explain that? 
Absolutely. So when we talk to senior executives, and and we've included um, since then thousands more um, mid-level managers and all kinds of um, industries and globally, as I mentioned, what we understand is that smarter collaboration isn't an end in itself. It has to be in service of a bigger goal. So choosing the why, why is it that we're trying to not trying to, why is it that we demand collaboration? It's because the kind of problem that we're seeking to solve or the opportunity we want to capture, that's the starting point. And so in some organizations, it's very purpose-driven. They want to be carbon neutral by 2030, and it's going to take enormous efforts to do that and a wide range of different kinds of people um, who put their expertise and, and commitment behind it. So starting with that kind of goal allows a leader to unpack it then and say, exactly whom do we need, um, whose mind do we need, whose commitment do we need, whose voice do we mean, and being intentional about who they involve. The risk, Mark, is that if you're not crystal clear about what you're trying to achieve collectively, that you end up wasting people's time and energy. Um, and you kind of dissipate responsibility, you dissipate the, the sense of accountability and the motivation to genuinely come together. And so the smarter piece of smarter collaboration is making sure you've got exactly the right people um, at the right time, no more, no less. I mean, how do you know that when you're putting that together? I mean, I think everybody starts off with, you know, they want to do exactly what you said. And they want that kind of positive outcome that comes out. Where, where do they trip up along the way? Several places. Um, in one instance, we have people who are overly inclusive and the spirit is right, but the execution falls down. And so rather than being hyper deliberate about picking, Based, you know, it's hypothesis driven, right? I know what I'm trying to achieve. And my best guess at the start is that we need this group of people deeply involved. Rather than doing that, some leaders say, hey, let's put it out there and see who's interested. That's a, it's, a, it's a recipe for getting um, diffused responsibility and no action, you know, a, a real um, kind of cluster where nobody is really driving this forward. Conversely, you sometimes have people who hold their cards too close to the vest. And uh, for a whole variety of reasons, often involving who gets the credit, et cetera, they don't open up the project widely enough. Um, and so those two kinds of mistakes we see happening quite often. Um, what we are advising is give it your best shot. Be very intentional, be hypothesis driven about who is absolutely necessary to accomplish this, um, and then flex as you need to. Because the people who are involved at the, the launch of an initiative might not be necessarily involved the whole way through. And the, the willingness to be agile and flexible as the project needs change or the individual objectives change, um, that's part of the, the critical leadership actions to drive smarter collaboration in the most effective way possible. How much does your time at McKinsey affect you? Because a lot of what you say is what you're taught at McKinsey, and you seem to have taken to a higher level on the collaboration side. So how much did you know working at McKinsey affect you and your thinking about this? And what did you learn from being there? Well, Mark, it's you know, what I started out when I said I couldn't do what I'm doing now if I didn't have that kind of whole jigsaw puzzle of opportunities that I'm building on right now. And McKinsey is absolutely a crucial piece of it. The idea of being hypothesis driven rather than, you know, the opposite is it, we used to say boiling the ocean, you know, collecting every bit of data you can and trying to analyze it and, you know, sort of seeing what falls out. No, it's, it's going in and using the best knowledge we have right now in an almost scientific method kind of way to um, develop a hypothesis and figure out how to test that hypothesis and then move, move forward. That's very um, consistent with McKinsey. It's also very consistent with all of the rigorous research I did um, in you know, my PhD training and the, and the empirical work I've done in peer-reviewed journals and that sort of thing since then. So McKinsey affected me um, in terms of that methodology. It also allowed me to be incredibly focused on the word we loved at McKinsey, which was impact. It's not enough, in my view, to walk into an organization. If I go in and do a keynote, whether it's for 50 people or 1,400, I don't want people walking out of there merely saying, that was interesting. 
I want them walking out committed to do one or two things differently the next day. Um, and that's what I see as impact is really not just changing people's minds, but changing their behavior in a systematic and sustainable way. That idea of impact is something that got into my blood at McKinsey, and I think it will be with me till the day I die. You know, one of the things that interests me, you talk about collaboration, but most of it's uh, focused on internal, but you also talk about external collaboration as well when you're partnering with other organizations. There was a long period of time that American companies believed that if it's not invented internally, it's not going to, it's not worthwhile. And they would not collaborate with other organizations. But in the last 20 years or maybe 30 years, you've seen a lot more collaboration uh, between large companies and early stage companies. Uh, and how, how does that, how do they, how can they make that work? Uh, especially in big organizations, uh, making that kind of collaboration uh, work well on their behalf to constantly create new products and services. Mark, I think this idea of collaborating across an entire ecosystem is very much you know what's hot now, but I don't think it's a passing fad. I think the idea that we are going to need to find ways to continually refresh our partnerships and think about um, which vector of collaboration, um, you know, which direction, which intensity um, requires our focus next is absolutely crucial leader, leadership skill now and going forward. In order to make external partnerships work though, one of the sort of cautions that Ivan and I raise in our book is it really has to start at home. If people, I'm coming back to the big T word here, which is trust. If people don't trust one another and they don't have full trust in leadership, it's hard to get them to trust entities outside their own organization. And so leaders need leaders. And when I'm talking about leaders, I don't just mean the CEO. I mean leaders at every level of the organization. They really have to work hard to create the environment where people understand that they are genuinely valued, um, that they can bring their real strengths to work, and that there's psychological safety so that they can ask for help or admit mistakes when that's appropriate. All of that to say the a strong, healthy, safe, uh, collaborative internal culture creates a foundation where external partnering is much more um, likely to take root in a, in a productive way. One of the pieces that Ivan and I also call out, we have a whole chapter on external partnerships, is that it's so essential to have a multi-threaded relationship. You know, we have seen umpteen examples of partnerships that have sort of died on the vine. They've just withered away. They didn't get cut off in an intentional way. They just kind of faded because they were built on a, a, a single dyad. You know, this person from this organization and this person from that one, they thought this was a brilliant idea and they worked really hard and it flourished for a while. But for a million reasons that we could all imagine, something came up. And when one individual or the other got pulled in a different direction, the partnership languished. And we are very clear, we've laid out a number of steps to help get a deeper, more sustainable relationship between entities so that you're not relying on the person-to-person -person connection, you know, merely at that dyad level. And it is initially a lot more work. Um, and it is uh, an effort that takes continual vigilance over time. And yet we know that if you want to reap rewards from an external partnership, it's non-negotiable. We have a question from the audience. Do you think collaboration won't work with scarcity mindset? What do you do when you need to improve services but have to work with people with scarcity mindset? Yeah, I mean, it's partly, it's a brilliant question. Um, and it's partly why we have spent so much time and energy amassing the evidence base for how smart collaboration generates positive ROI. So somebody with a scarcity mindset may believe that they're giving something away. You know, Daniel Kahneman's um, prospect theory, you know, losses loom larger than gains. It's easy for people to see what they're losing or giving up when they're, in their mind, sharing or compromising in a collaborative relationship. We've done the hard work of, uh, uh, of 
demonstrating empirically, you know, across, I think, incontrovertible evidence, at least in, in, in what we have been able to, to amass, that this way of operating in teaming up with people who are different than oneself generates outsized rewards for both those parties. Um, much more so than any of them could have accomplished on their own. It's a little bit like somebody gets 100% of a very small pie or they get 50% of an enormous one. And if you do the math, it works out. Um, that said, convincing people of that, sometimes you need much more than the empirical evidence. Um, one of my colleagues at Gardner & Co. has developed a framework, um, ACES, A-C-E-S, um, assess customize, uh, energize, and succeed. Right? And so that means that if we are trying to engage with somebody else who has this sort of mindset, we have to start by assessing the situation. Why do they have such a scarcity mindset? And then customize our appeal to them to help them, um, you know, kind of empathize with them and, and understand what would be um, positive for them, what would they find appealing in the partnership or in the collaboration? And so that ACES framework, I'm happy to share it with anybody who's interested. It's uh, it's really essential to get underneath the, the, the why of somebody who's holding back. The scarcity mindset, do you find that more with finance type people who don't want to make that investment or it can be any type of executive. Cause I kind of think of the finance people as people who are like kind of deal killers or something like that. I haven't found that mark actually, you know, we have looked um, and we've tried to find these kinds of patterns by function, profession, age cohort, and, and the data defies us. I mean, we've tortured it and it won't speak. Um, and what we find instead is that anybody across, you know, in any part of an organization could be a deal killer with their lack of enthusiasm or um, their resistance to an idea. What I would say is that in general, time and again, we have seen leaders, frankly, over index on the resistors. And so in any kind of transformation that we have been involved in, whether we're researching or advising or leading it, what we see is there's kind of a bell curve of commitment to uh, a transformation project. You've got the, the tail end of people uh, who are committed, either because they're already operating this way and they've seen the benefits or they're more risk seekers. For a variety of reasons, you have people who are willing to jump in with both feet. And then you've got the opposite tail, people who are digging their heels in. But you've got a whole range of people in the middle who are more or less taking a wait and see approach. Leaders who make a mistake will focus on the resistors and try and convince them, try and push them to be more positive and supportive. What we see is a far more fruitful strategy is going where the energy is, starting with the people, creating some pilots where they can get some tangible results, where these you know, people are already committed. And then you pull in that big lump of people in the middle and gain their commitment. If you structure these pilots appropriately so that you've got those wins that are coming and you see you know, tangible outcomes in the momentum building, you're much more likely to win those resistors over, over time. And then there's a hard call at some point in time to say, if somebody's truly resisting and blocking, what are you going to do about them? But it's absolutely not the first place I'd go. I'm wondering this, in the beginning of the book, you shared your research that cross-department and unit collaboration in companies led to greater success. And that's not really a, a big surprise, right, when you think about it. A company that comes to mind to me, uh, which I've always followed since I was in college, uh, is W.L. Gore, which focuses on the medical field. Who else do you admire and is a good example of this? Because those guys really have done it well for a very long time. Absolutely. I mean... So I, uh, I'm always a little hesitant to name names. If uh, you probably observed this, Mark, as, as we went through our book, we um, took great pains many times to disguise our examples because what we didn't want is somebody getting lost in the specifics. So, you know, if I may, um, at, at the risk of looking weaselly, what I would say is on a more general level, when we look at organizations that are highly successful at embedding this mindset of collaboration, um, it really does require top-down and bottom-up efforts. The CEO um, or whomever is in charge, it could be, you know, the director general, depending what kind of organization it is. It could be, you know, the, the, the top leadership. They have to 
embody and really live this idea of openness to challenge um, and embracing people and ideas that are very different than their own. That's one of the fundamentals that we see again and again across organizations. And at the same time, we have to see a groundswell of enthusiasm from the front front lines, bottom ranks, however you, you want to describe people who are the ones that are um, getting the work done on a day-to-day -day basis, whether they're interfacing with customers, whether they are in the product development field, whether they're the engineers. And leaders have to be, I believe, vigilant at all times in making sure not only that they are doing the right things, but that they are not encouraging any of the wrong behaviors. And that's another pitfall that we often see is leaders coming across as a bit two-faced. They will in their own world, be highly open to collaboration. They will exhibit these behaviors, but when they recognize and reward oftentimes um, individuals throughout the organization, they send a lot of mixed signals. So there may be people who are very sharp elbowed. They get the results, but in a sharp elbowed way. And if those people are celebrated by you know, top leaders as um, great performers, it can be a real culture killer and uh, and breed a lot of cynicism and undermine that trust that we said is so important. Yeah, I think those are short-term wins. Those people have short, uh, sharp elbows. I think the longer-term win is not having somebody like that in your culture because I think they're toxic. They are. They are absolutely, you know, and you know, we have to be very mindful um, day in, day out about the small signals that we send. You know, every anthropologist will tell you that culture is made of stories. And one of the challenges I put out, whether they're my executives at Harvard Business School or Harvard Law School or wherever it's in the, in the private work that I'm doing, I challenge people to think about what's the last story you told about something at work? You know, were you repeating something negative about somebody? Were you talking about the problems? What, what story did you tell? Conversely, were you deliberately seeking out um, a couple of people who worked together and you know, perhaps against the odds, really managed to do something collectively that neither of them could have done on their own? If you're seeking out those stories and repeating those and feeding the culture with them, you create this virtuous cycle, not only where people are hearing that and know that it's valued, but you also have people's antenna up. You know, it's the idea of catching people doing something right. And, uh, and, and you get people, you know, asking them deliberately, you know, what's the best collaborative act you've seen this week? The small things really matter. It could be somebody who's mentoring, not only mentoring a junior, but mentoring up. It could be somebody who's you know, um, uh, offering help. It could be somebody who's teaming up with a customer to solve a problem. Those are the kinds of actions that we want people to be hyper aware of and taking that next step to make sure that everyone knows how valuable it is. I wonder this, uh, is the lack of collaboration significant part of why, uh, a reason why companies like Sears, Wine Laboratories, Digital Computer, Howard Johnson's don't exist. And it looks like GE has followed the same declining trend. Even the United States as a country has become significantly less collaborative. What's your thoughts on that? I worry about it enormously. Um, you know, I don't have the you know inside baseball on any of those particular companies that you mentioned, but I can think of one organization that I was deeply familiar with. Um, and they suffered massively because the CEO, I think, was incredibly misguided. Um, and he thought that breeding a culture of what he called healthy competition was going to energize people. Um, and he was confused by the idea of whom we want to compete against. So he pitted one division against another. He he pitted teams against each other. He would publicly call out um, individuals, um, you know, for what they had accomplished and refused to acknowledge that they were standing on the shoulders of, you know, 15 other people. And by breeding that kind of culture, um, unsurprising, you know, I would guess to anyone on, on today's session is that it created very, very strong silos and it made people far more focused on competing against their peers than it did competing against the, the outside competition. 
Um, and it was a brutal place to work. Um, you know, there's one person I know her, her firm was bought by this company and she said that uh, she had golden handcuffs. So she had to stay for three years after her firm was bought. And she said those three years were the worst experiences of her life, including her wildly acrimonious divorce or the year her mother had died. So, I mean, it kind of puts in perspective how brutal these places can be when you have a leader misguided to think that healthy competition is indeed healthy. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, what uh, does the leader of a successful collaborative company look like? And then, I mean, they got to have an authentic way about them as well. And like you said, uh, throughout this uh, conversation, there are a lot of people who talk about uh, doing this and they sound like they mean it, but they don't really mean it. So what does that successful collaborative leader look like? What's the profile? Yeah, it, well, so I love I love this question because I would ask everyone right now, you know, picture your iconic collaborative leader. And I don't know who popped into mind for you. I'm not going to name names, but you know, for many people, I often show an analysis of of two really different um collaboration patterns, although they were um, exhibited by two, uh, people in the same role in the same company and a whole bunch of other things. And, and when I ask people, what do you think um, this individual who's highly networked, very collaborative looks like, they often start by describing that individual's personality as, as an extrovert. And, you know, and they have these um, uh, sort of mythical uh, characteristics that they imagine highly collaborative leader will have. Again, what I'm delighted to find in our data is we developed a psychometric tool that actually helps people profile themselves on seven different fundamental dimensions of smarter collaboration. And so, you know, one of those dimensions is, um, I'll pick um, complex versus concrete thinking, right? Uh, so you might imagine that uh, somebody who's a real collaborator, they're big, you know, blue sky thinkers, really out there on the edge. What we found is that that kind of thinker is just as likely to be a good or bad collaborative leader as somebody who's incredibly concrete um, and takes those wild, crazy ideas and puts them into practice, very execution, implementation focused. And you know, through many, many, many thousands of profiles that we have, we can test these different profiles um, compared to outcomes. And what we find is that there's no single dimension, you know, end of either dimension, which predicts higher collaborative performance. And there's no overall profile, which is indicative or predictive of a more successful collaborative leader. And so I think it comes back to, I believe what you were alluding to, Mark, people have to be incredibly authentic. And what that means, first of all, is they've got to be reflective. Where are their strengths? If they are a real risk seeker, as opposed to um, a risk uh, uh, spotter, you know, if they have a much higher risk tolerance or not, how do they lean into that? And how do they surround themselves with people who are opposite so that collectively they're taking appropriate risks, but not falling off a cliff? How, if they're a concrete thinker and they're brilliant at execution, how do they surround themselves with those complex thinkers who are out there connecting dots that they wouldn't have seen themselves? And so the best collaborative leaders are hyper self-aware and they're very willing intentionally uh, surrounding themselves with people who are different from them so that they've kind of got the bases covered collectively. That really matters. You pointed out that, uh, this is a question from the audience, you pointed out that sometimes leaders get tangled up too much with resistors and try to convince them rather than focusing on putting energy elsewhere. I'm one of those leaders who focuses on, res on resistors too much. How can such a mindset change and any tips? Oh, good. Well, A, um, uh, I think recognizing it is half the battle, right? So well done. Um, so, so very concretely, here are a few things to do. One is to find the pockets of energy. Who are those people who are genuinely supportive and 
um, find amongst them the people who are supportive for the right reasons, right? They're, they're not leaning into any new initiative asking what's in it for me, but they believe in the initiative for the right strategic reasons. Find those individuals and figure out how to leverage, engage, and resource them in the most constructive ways. And then I mentioned pilots earlier. Um, work with your team, whoever that is, to figure out what do you need to get done? So to uh, you know, achieve your strategic vision, whatever it is that somebody's resisting, what would that look like? How do you break it down into interim milestones and put different teams, different pieces, different projects against that so that you can begin to put points on the scoreboard? In other words, how do you structure it so that the people who are already um, uh, motivated to succeed here have ways that they can make concrete steps towards executing that vision and make sure you're collecting the data, you're celebrating those successes, you're resourcing them properly. If you have real pilots going, it means you're going to have different ways. You're going to be testing out different ways to accomplish the same thing. So some of those teams are not going to succeed as much. Celebrating them for what you've learned from, you know, from, from that initiative and then pivoting them to what's working better that's absolutely essential. And it creates this um, momentum and the, the successes along the way that you can really begin to focus your energy on and hence the energy of the organization. You know, one of my colleagues at Harvard Business School, Teresa Amabile, wrote um, a book that uh, is called The Progress Principle. And it talks about the power of small wins and how essential that is to really helping organizations get traction along the way. And so I'd recommend that book as well. It helps you focus on what you can do right um, in these small incremental steps. The last thing I'll say is um, to stop focusing on the resistors. I think it's um, really crucial to understand what power those resistors have. So there may well be a couple people and couple could be, you know, I don't know how many, depending how big the organization is, but, you know, I'm very small minority of people whom you do have to worry about. They're resistors and they're influencers. You need to figure out who they are. Um, are they actively blocking what's going on and creating a cadre of others who become skeptical? If you know that those people exist, you've got to find ways to neutralize them. Um, lots of ways that you can do that. Um, uh, and, you know, it's probably beyond the scope of today's conversation, but finding ways to pick out the very few resistors that you actually need to spend your energy on is crucial. The rest are just grumpy or risk averse or change fatigued or who knows what is going on in their life, right? Maybe show them a little bit of empathy, recognize that they're scared, um, recognize that, um, that they're resistors. They probably think they have a good reason for it. And you might want to um, have an envoy to engage with them, to understand them a little bit more and show them a bit of love and understanding, but I wouldn't spend a huge amount of time on it. Um. There have been a movement since COVID to work from anywhere but the office, especially young people. Some companies are forcing employees to come in at least a few days a week, if not every day. Can you build a corporate culture and collaborative organization of all your people where a core nucleus of people aren't working physically together? Yes, but it's a lot harder. Right? And so... There are plenty of instances of organizations where people are deliberately dispersed or need to be dispersed because they're you know, multinational um, efforts and, and so forth. What is essential is making sure that people have the opportunity to truly engage with each other on a human basis. One of the things that we find happens a lot in these kinds of technology um, uh, intermediated uh, situations is that we become incredibly task focused. And so we jump in and we stick to the agenda and we finish it and hit the leave button and we're off. 
what's missing in those instances is the humanity. Um, you know, you and I, Mark, had a, a great opportunity before everyone else joined where we could exchange some pleasantries, get to know each other a little bit, understand our, our backgrounds, you know, um, uh, you know, talk a little bit about, you know, the time we both spent in Philly and uh, those sorts of things, which allow us to have a connection. And next time we talk, we're going to know that, you know, we both have kids and we both, right. those are the things that allow us to see each other as more than just um, a transactional relationship to get a yeah. business piece done. But it's missing so often in these kinds of situations. It's hard for me to turn to somebody and say, hey, how did it turn out last week when fill in the blank? Your husband went in for surgery, your kid had a soccer game, whatever, right? Those are the things that connect us as humans and it's often missing. So the, the how-to um, lesson from this is if you're running a geographically dispersed organization or one where people are, you know, for whatever reason, not physically working together, you've got to engineer the humanity into it. Um, one of the pieces that I picked up, um, a mentor of mine, I was incredibly privileged to join Harvard University in 2008 um, because within five years, um, Dr. Richard Hackman, who is known as the godfather of um, groups and teams research, he had passed um, way too young. And I had the great good fortune of being mentored by him um, in those intervening years. One of the ways he kicked off every one of our research symposium, which happened at that time um, uh, twice a month, was by starting with good news. And this good news practice, you know, we literally did a whip around the, you know, in those days it was a table and now it's now gone hybrid and we've kept up this, uh, um, this practice. Everyone just chips in one thing that's positive that happened since the last time we were together. And Dr. Hackman knew full well the value of this. And I'm so happy that since then, all of the neuroscience has caught up. Um, what it does when we focus on not just our good news, but hearing the good news from people in our community, it, you know, it releases the, the dopamine, the serotonin, a whole range of other really um, healthy chemicals that boost our creativity, our problem-solving ability, and our connection with other people. And so it's one very small uh, suggestion that I have is maybe not every time you have a meeting, depending how frequently you bring people together. But if you are only in the, you know, the Zoom or the Teams kind of space, what I would recommend is periodically having that good news session so that you can get that human interactivity. Um, and then ideally, you're going to have people who follow up with each other asynchronously to say, hey, you mentioned this piece of good news, congratulations, you know, here's how to take it further or whatever. It's up to leaders to, to set that standard, to role model, to bake those kinds of routines into hybrid working. And um, you might need to explain to some of your hard-boiled people why it is that even when you're time pressured, that this is a good use of time. Um, but uh, once it becomes more habitual, people are incredibly bought in. But don't you think, I also think that if you don't connect with people on a personal level, you're not going to work that hard at making something happen. I mean, when you have that connection with your colleagues at work because you know about their kids, you know what they're investing, you know what they're like, you've developed a relationship with them. When that time comes to collaborate on something, you're going to make that work. But if you're not in the office and you don't know them, uh, the odds diminish, I, I would think, pretty significantly. Absolutely. You know, one mistake that we see leaders um, making all the time is that they try to engineer that sort of interdependence. And you can manipulate it through shared objectives and KPIs and a whole range of other things. Uh, but ultimately, we're human. And, you know, there is a very, very, very strong um, tendency that evolutionary biologists have described for a long time for us to affiliate with and trust and help our in-group. And so the kinds of things that we were just talking about, understanding one another as humans, it allows us to see those other people as part of our in-group. And we know that um, people who who count on each other in that way are much more likely to go above and beyond. Um, and 
again, you know, from the neuroscience perspective, we know that people who have strong workplace relationships benefit enormously, even in a physiological sense, you know, stronger connections between different parts of their brain, for example, um, or, uh, or, or uh, mental well-being, you know, they're more psychologically resilient when they have that. And there's a host of other outcomes that we can point to that are uh, beneficial results of people establishing those workplace relations. You write about putting together cross-functional teams to rethink products and services. What's the composition of those teams in terms of departments, skills, ages, seniority to get this thing done? Because I can imagine that there's got to be um, people who are you know, 30 years in the company experience, younger people who might think out of the box, somebody from finance, somebody from legal. What's that look like? Yeah, I mean, again, the answer can only be it depends. What are you trying to accomplish? What I would say is that on, you know, the hypothesis that you start with is there's a core group of people who are going to be absolutely essential to developing this new product, say. What um what we recommend is to open the funnel a lot wider in the beginning. So be it somewhat more inclusive right up front. Um, begin to ideate, um, understand where an idea sort of out of the blue, unconventional could really add value, and then very quickly winnow that down to the core group. I like to think about you know con concentric circles or you know a bullseye. Who's in the center and that core group has got to be engaged very um, uh, interactively, uh, very actively. But thinking along those lines of who's who's the next layer and the next layer and the next layer, and how do you keep them engaged um, so that you can draw them in at exactly the right time? So you mentioned legal. That's an interesting one. We um, we work with a lot of corporate legal departments around the world, and, and most general counsel will say a battle that they fight all the time is getting their department involved early enough in strategic initiatives. They're often the afterthought. People will take a whole initiative, a whole project really far down the road and at 95% completion kind of chuck it over the fence and ask legal to sign off on it. Um, and at which point, you know, the lawyer will say, hang on, like if you had, if you had gotten me involved really early, I could have fixed this one thing. Yes. Now I'm in a position of asking you either to do enormous amounts of rework and frustrating you or signing off on something that's suboptimal and riskier than it should be. Right. And so getting, thinking broadly about who in the beginning do we want to alert to what we're doing? Perhaps it's just as simple as saying, this is what we're doing let us know if you've got concerns or if you want to be involved in that first conversation. And then there's enough of a familiarity that you can draw them in um, at the right moments. This idea of a of, of, of flexing, you know, having uh, not just that bullseye that's that's rigid and this is the core project team, never shall it change, but rather kind of there's the core team and then it grows and shrinks and moves in different directions depending on the needs at any given time. That takes a lot more intentionality. It takes, it's the smarter part of smarter collaboration because you have to be continually thinking about who should be involved right now and looking ahead, how do I get them involved when I need them? And then sometimes making what feels like a slightly awkward call to say to somebody, you know, thanks for everything you've done up until this point, and we'll let you know when we need you again, but you don't need to be copied on every email and you don't need to show up at every meeting. You know, thanks for what you've done. We'll make sure you get all due credit, but, you know, let's not make sure, let, let, let's make sure that the project roster doesn't just grow and grow and grow. It shrinks when it's appropriate. Um, how much goodwill does collaborative company get when it comes to attracting talent? And is it more important than compensation? Oh, I mean, we can directly trace the effect of a collaborative culture, genuinely collaborative culture on the ability to attract people. So let's start there for a minute. Um, one of the strategies that is becoming more prevalent across organizations is a boomerang strategy. Um, boomerangs are the people who were once employees, they left for a whole variety of reasons. Um, and now you have the opportunity potentially to attract them back to the company. Uh, having a highly collaborative culture makes that much more likely that um, those people will not only 
be more willing to come back, more interested in coming back, but also that when they do, they'll be much more successful. Um, our research and loads of other scholars has clearly demonstrated that when you have a new joiner of any kind, whether they're a boomerang or a brand new hire, the, the degree to which they get integrated into the organization, they're pulled into the core work, they understand how it operates, they know uh, what they can say no to, for example, the, all of those cultural factors, the, the quicker and more deeply somebody gets integrated, the more likely that hire is not only to stick around longer, but to become profitable sooner um, and to do um, higher performing work. And so um, a highly collaborative culture helps attract the boomerangs back in because they already felt more integrated when they were um, uh, uh, originally part of the company. It helps them to get integrated faster when they come back because they've got some of those relationships they've built previously. What we also know on the talent front is that smarter collaboration helps to engage people. And engagement, as I'm sure everyone here is aware, in and of itself has highly quantifiable outcomes, um, higher productivity, higher customer or client satisfaction scores, um, and higher retention rates. And so um, engagement is, is a part and parcel of smarter collaboration. A, a strong indicator of somebody being engaged at work is whether they feel like day in, day out, they can do their best work. Well, think about smarter collaboration. Smarter collaboration is knowing what you're brilliant at and then finding other people who are brilliant at the other things. So you don't have to be, you know, the end all be all. You don't have to, you know, do everything well. You have to do what you're doing as a strength brilliantly and then surround yourself by people with complementary strengths. And so if you're engaging in smarter collaboration, you will almost inherently feel like you're doing your best work day in, day out. It's a sign of engagement. It leads to um, uh, retention and attraction and uh, a whole host of other kinds of quantifiable outcomes. So the talent benefits of smarter collaboration are real. I'm sitting in Vietnam right now and wondering if the best practices for internal and external collaboration are different based on one's culture or geographic location. So is it different in Asia than it, it is in the United States as compared to Europe? And, and you, as you mentioned early on, you worked in uh, four continents. So what's your thoughts on that? Yes, absolutely. We need to be culturally sensitive when we're thinking about smarter collaboration. So um, when I was living in South Africa, I was working for McKinsey at the time, and most of the projects I was leading there were relatively large teams, six, eight, 10 people. And most of the time, we had no more than two individuals from the same country or cultural background. So we had these incredibly culturally diverse teams. And what I was able to observe you know, firsthand there as a leader of these teams and, and, and working with different um, subcultures within South Africa, which is, as you well know, is, is a country that has a very rich um, uh, and diverse set of cultures uh, within it. We have to be very sensitive to um, collaborative behaviors such as challenging one another. What does it mean to um, bring one's unique points of view into a conversation if we inherently have a different opinion than somebody. That is going to um, a culturally sensitive way to challenge somebody else's opinion. It's going to look different, um, you know, in Southern Africa than it did in Japan, right? You know, I, I speak Japanese. I lived in Japan for some time. Um, I was I was working there and teaching and. You know, the idea of um, hierarchy is so deeply embedded there. And the way that we can go about engaging our seniors or higher status individuals, um, you know, there are very, very um, clear rules of engagement there, which frankly, you know, when I'm working in New York, don't apply. And so we, we do need to be culturally sensitive to it. Uh, but the at the basic level, some of the things that we've been talking about like trust and respect in other people, they're so foundational. Um, it sometimes gets easy to see on a superficial level how those gets ex get expressed, whether it's with a bow and a, a different ending on, uh, you know, on the verb, or whether it's by, you know, shaking somebody's hand really vigorously. Those different ways of expressing respect and esteem for people um, 
are still foundationally very much part of what it means to respect and trust and invite people into our collaborative setting. You write that many companies say collaboration takes too long and the payback requires patience. Over a 10-year period, collaboration versus non-collaboration, who comes out ahead? Oh, collaboration every time. I mean, in a decade without a doubt. You know, but what we see, this idea that I don't have time to collaborate, it's true in a very short-term sense. You know, if I think about starting up a new collaboration. I've got to learn somebody else's jargon. I, I just had this experience this morning. I'm joining a, a, a fabulous new research group. Um, we're doing a, a, a study of how to embed purpose-led leadership across multinational companies. And there are four um, individuals, all from really different backgrounds. And we've got to get to know each other. We've got to invest in each other's frameworks and jargon and all sorts of things. Um, and it, the startup costs are high. But I know that I'm going to be able to do something so much richer and deeper and higher impact because I'm joining forces with them. So I have to get past my immediate sense of time pressure, like, oh, my gosh, here's another kickoff meeting to look down the road and say, what are we going to be able to do that is so much more powerful by joining forces? Inside organizations, one of the big problems is the incentive system, um, even for the organization as a whole. If you've got a public company with quarterly um, analyst calls, they are going to be hard pressed sometimes to make the necessary investments in these sort of cross-silo um, initiatives. And yet, if they've got their eye on the longer term, if they want to create more sustainable customer relationships and not have the customers churning all the time, clearly so much more profitable in the long term, they've got to invest. If they want to be innovative and they really want to be out there on the leading edge, as opposed to um, a less profitable follower of, say, technology trends, they've got to engage in collaboration across silos. They simply can't do breakthrough innovation without it but they have to be willing to invest right now for some of those outcomes that only emerge in the future. Question from the audience. Does she, uh, does she have any examples of collaborating with community group volunteers, not paid, but very interested group? Oh, absolutely. This is one of my favorite kinds of collaboration um, to be thinking about. When you have people who are purpose-driven. And, and let's be honest, their purpose sometimes is about the mission of the organization. They want to help foster kids or you know, save a coral reef or whatever. Sometimes they're genuinely trying to fix that problem or, or capture an opportunity. Sometimes their motivation, or for some people in the group, their motivation is much more about the community and what they get from that community. Um, and so it's really important for people who are leading those kinds of initiatives to understand that they're not leading a homogenous group. So again, I'm going to come back to this ACES framework. Start with the A for assess. Um, what are the motivations of the people involved? And then how do you customize different approaches? How do you have something for these different segments of your volunteer community that will for those who are really mission-driven, give them the sense of progress, celebrate those wins, make sure that the, the organization as a whole is tracking its progress and getting you know, attention, whether it's media or you know, from stakeholders, making sure that people who are focused on the outcome understand the progress that's being made there. But for the people who want to be part of this and they thrive feeling like they are contributing, making sure that they have opportunities to connect on this human level with other people and that they get to play to their strengths is really um, absolutely essential. You know, it even comes down to sometimes with community volunteers, being able to listen to people who are from really different backgrounds, not just about why they're doing it, but what it will take to keep them engaged. For some, it means being really flexible with how much time or treasure they commit. Um, for other people, it is helping them think about you know, just logistical challenges. If you want them to attend a, a rally or come to a park cleanup, how are they going to get there? And can you help that? You know, there's so many different um, needs that people can fulfill by being part of one of these community-based organizations. The more you can make your initiative attractive to a diverse group of people and have them genuinely contribute in ways that they value, the more the organization gets out of them. 
So, honey, this is my last question. It's not going to surprise you here because it's so much in the news. How is AI going to impact collaboration? Oh, my goodness. What a big question to end on. I would say um, one thing that I hope is that people aren't so scared of AI that they um, retreat into their silos. One of the um, common tendencies that we've observed is that when people are under pressure, it's not unusual for them to retreat into the worlds that they're most comfortable with. That's kind of a normal human reaction to stress and pressure and uncertainty. Um, And so I hope that so much of the kind of fear mongering around AI doesn't cause people to become less collaborative. On the upside, I see um, AI almost as a partner in a collaborative effort. How can we use AI to do the pieces of work that don't excite anyone on our team? Um, how can we you know, use AI and partner with it as a almost a team member and outsource the bits and pieces to um, a, a program, to a generative, I pro, generative AI program that um, get us unstuck, um, that, you know, that inject fresh ideas. Sometimes they're crazy ideas and unreliable, but how do we use it in, in, in that way and productively? How do we use AI as a, as a thought partner to get us beyond what any of us um, can access right now? There's lots of ways uh, constructively that we can use AI to augment what we as humans are fundamentally great at. Heidi, I have to say this was great. Your book was great. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I think everybody who gets your book uh, can take their company to another level. And I, and I thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Well, I appreciate it. I'm so glad that people were able to join us. And uh, I would uh, invite people to follow me on LinkedIn where we're putting our latest research out there and asking for lots of participation. So I look forward to staying in touch. Well, we look forward to your next book when you come out with the next one as well. Everyone have a wonderful weekend. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.